AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. I'm Todd Wescalis. I'm the AVP and General Manager of AT&T Cybersecurity Consulting Group. So I'm really excited to be on Threat Track today. I think our conversation is going to have a little bit of a different perspective because we support AT&T's externally facing clients. So we're out working with our end clients and helping them solve their challenges. So I think it brings a unique perspective back to the organization. In this uh, Threat Track episode, it's interesting to see different points of view come across. We have the customer oriented point of view where myself and Todd, we work with a number of customers on site and we also get to hear John's view as uh, being part of CSO, you know, how he deals with some of the internal challenges within AT&T. Business email compromise is the concept where attackers go after specific individuals inside of an organization, typically at a high level, so CEOs, CFOs, people that have the ability to authorize payments and then uh, convince them that there's someone else to try to get them to offshore some money to a foreign bank account. The FBI recently put out a report on business email compromise and the need for consumers to be aware of this. So Todd, when you think about the CEO fraud or the business email compromise, what are some of the things that you've been hearing amongst our clients? You know, it's interesting, Bindu. I mean, then just another vector of social engineering, but very, very targeted, mm -hmm. right, against particular individuals in the organization. I think what's funny, though, is that as we help organizations deal with social engineering and training their people and testing their environment, quite often we're told, all right, you can test everybody, mm -hmm. just don't touch the executives, right? Yeah. They're, not, they're out of scope for this uh -huh. thing. And so we're starting to see more and more companies step up and say, yep, we've got to get our boardroom involved, we've got to get our senior people involved, go ahead and include them in the social engineering test. And yeah. hopefully that'll make a difference and see some reduction in this BEC. Yeah, pretty much no industry is immune to this, right? right. You can think about a hospital, you can think about a retailer, manufacturing, all of these people have wired large sums of money to offshore accounts without even hesitating. I was talking to some of our customers who said, how practical is it for me to walk into the CEO's office and say, hey, did you really you know, send me that information or say that you, know, you wanted it to be wired? My you know, perspective is, do you want to be sorry that you wired you know, billions of dollars to this fund? versus going and just double checking. John, what are you seeing from the AT&T side? Well, we're seeing a lot of that. I mean, we try to do, you know, a lot of filtering, you know, with, with spam and rules and phishing. But I think we do see the same thing. Targeted phishing has become so prevalent. And I don't think people recognize that an email or whatever that they get is going to be tailored to them. That They're going to know sometimes where they bank. You know, they're going to know their pet's name. You know, that we put all this stuff on Facebook. So these, these phishing attempts are not just such randomness that you know you can easily guess it, bad language, bad grammar. It is very targeted, sometimes even just to one person, that one financial officer that they know everything about you that, you know, and, and they'll just make it seem like it's a real legitimate email. Yeah, yeah. That reminds me, I'm gonna ask you, um, I've gone ten concerts. I want you to tell me which one I haven't gone to. I don't know if you saw that Facebook thing or not, but <laughs> just another ploy to, to, yes. to get information out of individuals, yeah. right? And you know, we're seeing that, you know, out of office messages, you know, where you exactly write, you know, where you're gonna be gone and mm -hmm. how long you're gonna be away and who's your secondary. You know, you say, Hey, for anything related to operations, deal with this person, finance, you know, right. talk to this person. They're able to take all of that information and weave it into an email which 
really does look legitimate. We hear a lot about training and awareness that goes on in organizations. I think what we need to see is more testing of mm -hmm. that training and awareness. And then we've got to get our employees involved in that feedback loop, right? Yes. Some of the most successful programs I've seen mm -hmm. where companies test their employees and then bring their employees together afterwards and say, hey, here's what we did. Here's how many people we caught. Here's how many people did this, right? Yeah. And so, as and we've seen over time how that number goes down with the more involvement the employees have. You can't just fire and forget from a training perspective. I think the, the key takeaway from the article that Bindu spoke about was that business email compromise is hitting every segment, every vertical, all sizes. So you have to realize that everybody in the organization is a target and everybody needs to do the right things to protect the data. So I was reading, as everybody else probably has, about the orange is the new black mm -hmm. pack, um, or as I like to call it, third party is the same risk. Yes. Right? <laughs> um, and the situation there where some actors have gotten access to that information, held it up for ransom. Orange is the new black is a series on Netflix where viewers are anticipating the release of the season of the show. A third party that housed the data, the, the series information for Orange is the New Black, was compromised and that data was taken. It was then held for ransom. I think it really kind of makes us look back again at the supply chain risk that we deal with, right? And it's yeah. not just the Orange is the New Black issue. I mean, the majority of compromises that we see going on today is typically through some third party. Mm -hmm. You know, somebody who doesn't have the funds to set up the security that the larger organization does and, yeah. you know, leveraging those credentials to you know, exploit access and, and get into the environment. Yeah, and what we're also seeing is, hey, entertainment industry, why would somebody go after me? Right? right? Classic examples. We've seen other breaches in the past in this industry. And even, you know, what is happening right now is nobody's immune, right? So you could have data that you don't think is, you know, really what the hacker is after, but it could be any piece of information, in this case, the series, right? That right. is being downloaded now. What is the hacker after today, right? So if you ask each vertical, each industry, they'd say, hey, you know, my sensitive information is health information. My sensitive information is payment card information. But that's not it. The hacker is after your intellectual property. The hacker would like a you know list of vendors that you work with. You know, any information that they can monetize is what they're after. Every organization has some data that's valuable to somebody. Many organizations say, hey, it's not, they're not gonna come after me, I don't have anything. But clearly, everybody has something at risk. So John, what do you think of you know what's happening out there? There's a lot of suppliers and then the third party, you know, groups and, and about anything you do anymore. There's nothing that is a single, you know, source in, you know, product, whether it be just even servers, you know, storing it on a cloud site. You know, so it, it's certainly something that everyone has to be cognizant of that there is a uh, you know, is a, as a need to make sure that you've secured it at each level and that you know where each level is being managed. Yeah. You know, when we talk about management and risk management, right, that's one of the options. So mm -hmm. you identify the risk in the organization to make a decision. Do I accept that? Do I mitigate that risk or do I transfer that risk, right? And I think that we've got to be conscious of the fact that as we transfer that risk out and we have third parties in our supply chain holding critical information for us, yeah. that at least contractually we're making sure that we're covered, but as well, you know, validating that with third party risk assessments and having a strong program in place yeah. to be able to go back and ensure that that organization is protecting that data properly. Yeah, and across the board, I think we use several types of third parties, so establishing a risk profile for each one of those and making sure you categorize, hey, this is, you know, hot information that's probably going to be wanted outside. Yep. So those types of vendors that have access to that need to definitely fall under a different category of protection versus the other ones that you know, you're not giving them that much access. So I think it's also going back 
as an organization and revisiting your third party list, most of them really don't even have that documented, right? So you don't have a list of everybody that you work with. And that is key now. So. Yeah, and it, what, the interesting thing you said it earlier is that, you know, some companies don't think they have data that's worth stealing, mm -hmm. right? You know, when, when I hear that from a client, I say, well, you know what, unfortunately, that's not up to you. <laughs> yes. You're not the one that's going to make that decision. Somebody else is, yes. right? And, and even if you think your data is, is so low value that nobody would steal it, you know, you look at what businesses are doing today with big data pools and analytics. I mean, mm -hmm. these actors have access to the same information, the same systems, right? Mm -hmm. Essentially, same concept. So they're taking all this seemingly innocuous data, they're putting it in a data lake, they're mining it, and then they're launching large-scale attacks, whether the BECs or right. whatever they might be with these pieces of data. Yeah, and you know, the more information that we collect these days about you know, assets and store them, you know, those are the ones that get flagged out by hackers as to be used for other purposes. Right, exactly. So. John, any thoughts on that follow-up? I, I, I think the thing that always gets me on, in any of this whenever I see these stories is, is visibility into those third parties. It is, is how do I, you know, as the owner of the data, whether I think it's important or not, can I see what somebody else is, is you know, how they're managing it, you know, do they have logs? Do they have data that I can look at to see who, who's even getting in there? Maybe, maybe I'm curious that, you know, that there's been 27 connections from a certain IP address in, you know, in Central Asia. Maybe, maybe that's something I need to know. Right. No, that's a great point. That's a great yeah. point. And to be able to get that, you really need a good understanding of what your baseline traffic is. We have challenges there with many organizations that don't really monitor and know what the baseline is. So how can you identify anomaly if you don't know what your baseline is? So which is why we deal with threat fatigue, right? The alert fatigue. I mm -hmm. keep getting alerts, so I'm not going to pay attention to it. Right, but so that's not the solution. Just tune it down so yeah. I don't have to listen to it anymore. Yeah. So you need to establish a risk profile and make sure that when you look at risk from a cybersecurity point of view for your organization, it's the sum of risks of all these other third parties that are connecting to you. It's important for companies to realize that security has to extend beyond the enterprise boundary. It's got to go into your third party suppliers and your supply chain and those types of things. You've got to be able to validate that. So set expectations and then be able to go back and test and validate that those controls are in place to protect your data. Hey, John, I hear you have a pretty interesting story on certificate pinning. You want to tell us about that? Sure. One of the things I do on a day-to-day -day basis is look at security vulnerabilities impacting applications and mobile devices. In, in that ecosystem, there's a lot of messages and a lot of stories that come about about man-in-the-middle attacks. A man-in-the-middle attack is where an end client believes they're talking to an authenticated server, an authorized server. But essentially, there's an individual sitting in between that communication stream who's, who's compromised that connection and is collecting all of the data that that client is talking to the server on. Often, it's over a public Wi-Fi, probably the most common type of breaches. And then uh, when you're in there, you're collecting cardholder data. If you're buying things online, you're collecting banking information, logon credentials. All of that information is being sent in the middle unencrypted. Was there was a story back in February uh, that uh, you know a, a researcher had found that when he was looking at a lot of popular apps, in particular banking apps, he was finding that they were subject to man-in-the-mill attacks based upon their certificate not being properly validated. You'll have a client certificate, you have a server certificate, they match them up, they share a key, and then they make sure that that session is encrypted. And, and you know, in, in best-case scenarios, nobody can access that data. Or if they can, they just see scrambled-up garbage. If you don't do the, the proper handshake and proper negotiation of those keys, it is certainly very possible that 
somebody could intercept it, be the man in the middle, somebody right in the middle that can connect the dots. And one of the key solutions to solving this is for to get penny. And it's not a term that a lot of people know, especially not people in the network world know. It's more of an application thing. But basically what that means is, is that I'm going to hard code in my application. Here is the server certificate, in particular the root certificate, that I'm connecting to. And so that when I connect to that, that site, I'm going to get back that certificate. I can validate it against the one that's stored in my application and can have a, a high certainty that I'm actually talking to that person. So certificate pinning, as uh, John pointed out, is a good solution, especially in terms of building new applications. Rather than uh, passing something up to the server and getting a certificate back and validating that, the certificate is pinned inside of the application and then the server has the validation of that certificate. So there's no exchange of information, there's just exchange of validation, which reduces the likelihood of the attack. I think as a coding best practice, this is probably going to be one of the things that coders should look at, especially when they're transiting sensitive information, such as payment information. We're seeing a number of our healthcare customers, for example, use these um, you know, custom applications that they build that talks to different portals. And you, know, you want to make sure that you know, somebody else is not intercepting this type of traffic and this would be a good best practice. Quick question, John. So you, you mentioned it earlier. You said they hard code the certificate into the application. How does that work for certificate management down the road if you need to change that certificate? It does make certificate management tricky. So if you upgrade or change that certificate, it expires, you'll have to push out a new version of the application. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, this, so this has to really tie into change management as well because with the types of apps that we seem to be developing on the spur now, you know, all this needs to connect because tomorrow one uh, application that has an expired certificate could be the cause for a vulnerability later. Yeah, interesting. I remember when we first, back in the days, so right, if you get the, the Wayback Machine with Mr. Peabody, we were running these apps, they were trusting the client way too much, right? So you could manipulate the client-side credentials, pass them up, and everything was great. You were in the, in the account. Now we're you know, not trusting the client enough, so it sounds like it's time to kind of, hey, let's bring those two together and make sure we've got a, a, a agreed-upon relationship out of the gate, and then when we go to talk to each other again, we can do that securely. And, and best practices say that you know, if you're doing something very private and very personal, and, and banking kind of falls into that, you want to be very cautious on doing that in a public Wi-Fi environment. Sure. There is the potential that you know, if you're not you know, really monitoring what you're doing, that somebody could be uh, you know, accessing your data. Yeah, that, just to spin off from that, we talk about man-in-the-middle attacks, right? So using a public Wi-Fi, everybody says, hey, you got to use a VPN. But you look at all the VPN providers that are out there, you start to wonder, how many of them are legitimate? How many of those are actually, you know, yeah. capturing my traffic and passing it on? I mean, it's, so it's, I guess you got to verify, right? Yeah, well, and it always worries me when I see one of those VPNs get an update. You know, like the, the app gets updated because there's a problem or a bug fix. It's like, oh, that makes me nervous. Right, <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. So um, I hear you got some quizzes for us, John. I have a one-question quiz, and it's not going to be the easiest thing in the world. I have to. I'm sorry. I, I, a lot of people tell me that my quizzes are easy. This one's not going to be super easy. All right. <laughs> but I created seven steps, and I'm going to read them to you. And you got to tell me where you think the man-in-the-middle attack is most likely to occur. All right. All right. So, so, so I'm going to go slow. But okay. So the first step is the client hello. So that's basically you saying, you know, hello. The second step is the server hello, which is essentially the server saying, oh, hi. Step three is authentication. You know, who, you know are you who you say you are? 
Step four is what they call the pre-master secret. So you have master secrets, you have pre-master secrets. So this is the kind of a secret that happens, you know, beforehand. Just kind of make sure that, you know, we really are who we say we are. We know, you know, everything that we think we know, and, and we're okay just to even have the conversation. Step five is decryption, and that's actually also where the master secret occurs. So that's where you're actually getting into the, into the meat of the, of the communication. Six is generate the session keys. So that's, again, you know, we're, we're, we're starting to set up that, that secure tunnel. And then seven is the actual encryption with that session key that, that's agreed upon. So those are the seven steps. And, and so the question is, is in all that, you know, talking, if you ever look at it, it's pretty noisy. You know, and, and you, you can even say it's early or late, you know, if you don't remember the numbers. You know, like where, where do you think that that man-the-mill attack is probably most likely to have occurred? All right. I think it's in uh, the server hello. So I, I say that uh, the man in the middle attack happens when the response goes back, the client says hello to the server, the man in the middle then grabs that, that hello, sends it forward and acts as the client, and then brings it back, and then the man in the middle sends that server hello back to the client. So now the client is, thinks that the server is the endpoint, but my thought is the client thinks the server is now, the man in the middle is now the server. And Ben, do you agree with that, or is there something else that you think? So when you were describing it, I thought it was between four and five. So I thought that initial, until they get to the pre-master, it'll behave as if everything is okay. And once they get that pre-master is when, you know, this man in the middle attack will commence. Good logic. I think, Todd, you're probably a little closer to the most common. I mean, it actually, to be honest, man in the middle attacks can occur in every step. It's a little bit of a tricky question. That, that sounds like a consulting answer. <laughs> <laughs> But, but I want to connect and capture that very person early mm -hmm. in the steps I can so that when we start sharing those keys and the certificates, I, I can grab it. So it's really in step one or two, and, and, and that's exactly right. Very nice. <laughs> Glad I was close. Uh, it's good, but, but, but I think it's a bit of a trick question because it can occur at every stage. And, 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 that's, and that's really, until you actually establish that VPN session, that encrypted session, there's somebody can probably inject them, you know, and, and inject themselves about anywhere. So very good, guys. That was a good, good, good responses. John's quiz was enlightening. You know, I actually really thought, you know, while he was walking through all of the steps, you know, I really never thought, you know, the man in the middle could happen at that initiation stage. But, you know, coming to think of it, he is right. You know, that was probably the best point to start. And like he points out, it can happen at any of those channels. But the starting was, you know, enlightening. Thank you, John, for joining us. This was very insightful. I learned something new today about where the man in the middle attack could happen, and potentially, you know, we're all safer now. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, and y'all have a great day. Thanks, you too. Todd is somebody that I uh, work with all the time, but, you know, we've never been on Threat Track together, and it was an interesting experience to get his insights as well. Really excited to be on Threat Track. I know that uh, some of my teammates have supported this, and I'm looking forward to opportunities in the future. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.